Hello, everyone, and welcome to this week's episode of Back to Basics. We are back again with a brand new episode coming from the book of Genesis. You know, everybody's favorite part of the Bible. Uh, as usual, I am still uh, Pastor Don, and joining me is the lovely, the wonderful, the amazing, the insert superlative here, Courtney Fraley. Hi. So today we are going to dig into what is effectively the prologue to the story of Noah and the ark, which is what we'll be getting into in the next couple of videos. Uh, but today we're gonna to be looking at Genesis chapter six, verses one through eight, the, the lead in, the, the set up, the because of this for the story of, of Noah, depending on your perspective. So I am gonna kick it over to Courtney here to do the reading of Genesis six, verses one through eight. Take it away. All right. Let's see, cold reading the Old Testament, here we go. All right. When people began to multiply on the face of the ground and daughters were born to them, the sons of God saw that they were fair and they took wives for themselves of all that they chose. Then the Lord said, my spirit shall not abide in mortals forever for they are flesh. Their days shall be 120 years. The Nephilim were, in, were on the earth in those days and also afterward when the sons of God went into the daughters of humans who bore children to them. These were the heroes that were of old, warriors of renown. The Lord saw that the wickedness of humans was great in the earth and that every inclination of the thoughts of their hearts was only evil continually. And the Lord was sorry that he had made humans on the earth and it grieved him to his heart. So the Lord said, I will blot out from the earth the humans I have created, people together with animals and creeping things and birds of the air, for I am sorry that I have made them. But Noah found favor in the sight of the Lord. Well, that's a dark place to start. So let's start there. Um, now there's, there's a lot to say about this passage. Before I get started, I'm gonna give a little behind the scenes look. Uh, a lot of my background information on the Old Testament, I like to pull from this book in particular, which I'm not sure if the video is gonna reverse that or not, but that says how to read the Bible by James Kugel. I picked this one up in seminary and it is a really, really good just take apart of most of the, the Old Testament stories. So. If you are following along and are looking for a very good, but very academic sort of read, I recommend picking that one up. It's a good book. Um, so that's what I'm pulling a lot of my information from in case you were wondering. So now that we have said that, uh, what do you notice here, Courtney? Um, <laughs> I notice a very undeity, like I'm taking my ball and going home vibe from God. <laughs> yeah, there, there's that. Um, you know, there's for eight verses there's a hell of a lot going on here yeah i noticed the uh whole hey there's people who aren't all human out there that's a yep. thing that's real that's the n-word the in the room you know nephilim um like that is um that one is worth talking about um because the the nephilim the word nephilim itself uh the hebrew term of it is is pretty obscure it's defined here as the heroes who were of old men of renown, kind of, uh, but there isn't much more information given about it. And you can't really etymologically parse the word Nephilim because even the origin of that term is pretty obscure. Um, so the short answer is we don't really know what in the heck these things were. Um, yeah, you said it's like the children of God or something, right? Like- Yeah, what we have here, it, it says- The sons of God. Yeah, the sons of God went into the daughters of humans who bore children to them. Um, now, 
as I have in videos past, I will once again bring up that phenomenal epic Noah uh, starring Russell Crowe, probably the only Russell Crowe movie I like, um, which, as I've mentioned before, drew a lot from some of the more interesting Hebrew midrash in constructing uh, its kind of mythological setting. Uh, the Nephilim were a, a uh, very present force in, in that book, or book, movie is the word I meant. Um, so in that movie, they were portrayed as giant rock monsters, because again, when you don't know what you're talking about, you can take all kinds of liberties with it. Uh, historically speaking, Nephilim have been understood to be kind of like a race of giants. Um, now, like Goliath from the David and Goliath story yeah. is meant to be a Nephilim, correct? Uh, I don't or know if it's assumption? explicitly meant that Goliath is meant to be a Nephilim, but you know, it wouldn't surprise me if we take this in a somewhat literal sense, because it does say they were on the earth both before and after these times. So some of the Nephilim clearly survived the flood. Um, so yeah, it wouldn't surprise me at all if there was some sort of Nephilim genetics going on there. But again, that's trying to read biblical literalism into the story, and I, I try to avoid that. Um, as for what the Nephilim are, um, like historically, we, we have them as basically, you know, half angel babies. Um, but that brings up a lot of other questions too. Like um, the way it's painted here is that the, the angels got awful lusty and nabbed them some human girls, uh, which doesn't seem to fit any other description we have of divine creatures. Yeah, they're usually like made of wings and eyes and fire. Yeah, right? like six-winged, multi-eyed creatures that probably don't have, you know, genitals. Um, so, like, there's a lot of, wait, hold on, what? That's connected with this. Yeah. Um, which leaves the question of what exactly sons of God really means here, too, which, again, not entirely sure. Uh, interpretively, throughout most of history, it has been thought to be angels of some sort. Uh, and we do know that it's not uncommon for angels to appear, particularly in the Old Testament in vaguely human form. So I'm going to say it's not possible. Um, but if we discount this historically for the moment. And, well, we and why would something that Eldritch find a human attractive? <laughs> like, Well, you know, um, you know. Uh, I believe it's uh, pretty much down to the fact that those chicks be hot, yo. Um, like, that's pretty much interpretively how it's been held. It's like, yeah, in that day, there were some, there were some hot old biddies, y'all. <laughs> that is the theological interpretation of that question. Bible study, everybody. Woo! Uh, <laughs> But yeah, like, I mean, that, that is pretty much it. But if we take the historicity out of it for a minute, um, a large chunk of the reason for this prologue being here is to provide a degree of um, kind of mea culpa for God, you know, a little, little bit of like kind of an out here. Because uh, we, you talk about, you know, God's uh, take my ball and go home attitude with respect to humankind. Like we know, even because of the existence of Noah, that it wasn't all humans. Like there were still some good there and it couldn't be. Hashtag not all humans. <laughs> there you go. Hashtag not all humans. I like it. Um, but even though it says in the text, um, let's see, where was it? Um, 
the Lord saw that the wickedness of humans was great in the earth and that every inclination of the thoughts of their hearts was only evil continually. Like that doesn't seem to mesh with what we know about humans. Yeah. Um, so it seems out of character for God. Now, one point I am going to raise here and as modern, particularly progressive modern Christians, uh, we tend to shy away from this aspect of God, but the, the book I, I work out of here makes a big point in mentioning that, um, you know, the, the story of Noah and the flood is one that causes a lot of modern readers to, to denounce the Old Testament God as wrathful, uh, and that a lot of more progressive leaders tend to dismiss because we're like, you know, God isn't destructive, isn't a destroyer. Well, Sometimes God is like um, the biblical story of the great flood presents a God who kills as well as keeps alive. Um, who is, as the Bible says elsewhere, both the maker of good and the creator of ill. Um, and that has to resonate with our own time sometimes. Like there's the, like, that is one of the big things we wrestle with God is that God sometimes destroys. Um, and we're, we're going to get into that a little bit more in a minute, but when it comes back to the Nephilim, this is presented uh, narratively as a rationale to get around the not all humans question. Like, sure, the humans were bad, but there were also angel half-breeds on the planet and they had to go too. Um, so that is uh, traditionally one of the main interpretations there has been that, you know, the, the Nephilim are one of, if not the main reasons for the flood because God was like, Damn, angels, you nasty. We've got to take care of this. Okay, but why wipe out, like, all the animals and stuff, too? I don't know. Like, we're, we're attempting to apply narrative lenses to something that has a lot of different potential reasons to it. Um, and to be clear, if we're going to look at this historically, I do believe that a lot of this is throwing a theological lens onto the cultural memory of what was a historic event. Like yeah, I, I've wondered about that a lot because it seems like pretty much every culture on the planet has a great flood myth. Yeah. And it's like something must have happened mm. that like everyone, there's cultural memory of it yeah. everywhere. So there must have been something yeah. akin uh, to a biblical flood that legitimately happened. I forget the exact science and numbers behind it, but I recall reading not too long ago that there was scientific evidence and kind of like some of the substrate and stuff that like archaeologists were finding that was like 10 to 15,000 or something like that back, that there was just a period where everything was underwater for a little bit. Um, uh, there were, there, there were a lot of like, we'll find this out as we go on, that there are scientific things that tend to back some of this stuff up. Like when we get to Sodom and Gomorrah, which oh God, we're gonna have a lot to talk about when we get there. Um, you know, the whole story with the, you know, smiting with fire from on high and pillars of salt thing. Um, there was a, a small scale cometary uh, debris impact in the region right about that same time. Um, which anybody too close to a cometary debris impact, particularly if they're in the, far, the forefront of the radiation blast, would have probably been turned to some sort of sodium based ash. Like, there, there is science underlying some of this stuff in a sort of vague way. So not to dismiss the theological side of things, but these are the theological and cultural memories of things that have a grounding in reality. 
Um, so I personally tend to take this whole story here as attempting to come to terms religiously with a massive natural disaster for which early humans would have had no other explanation. Yeah. Um, so that is a huge part of it. And that is a question we ask whenever bad stuff happens in the world is, okay, where is God in this? And how did God play into this? Because what just happened? Um, so I see this as almost reactionary in that way. Um, now that's not to say that this wasn't deliberate by God, uh, but I do also not want to dismiss the human angle of it as well, if that makes sense. Yeah, well, I mean, we've talked multiple times about how it, when you're when we're studying this, especially, mm -hmm. you know, people who are not coming from you know the Jewish cultural background that this stuff all comes from, where mm -hmm. there's a deeper meaning and everything like that. It's it's largely just you're reading someone else's you know cultural historical documents that are already writing down stuff that was word of mouth. Yeah. So it's not really for us to know every answer to it. It's just sort of exactly. And this it's is just sort the, of there. This is the pinch of salt I try to tell people to take their scripture readings with when we do this, is we have a hard enough time today in our own lives answering the question, how and why is God active in this space? Um, mm -hmm. It is not, and, and I say this with the benefit of someone who has gone to school for this stuff, who has worked hard, who has studied it, you know, it's, it's, it's hard to answer that question on stuff that's been subject to a two to 5,000 year old game of telephone. Yeah. Like our answers aren't always going to be satisfying. They're not always necessarily going to be accurate, uh, which is why, again, we come back to it with that theological lens to ask, okay, the historical details are probably irrelevant at this point. Um, so what is God trying to tell us through this story today? Not what is, 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 the question isn't what are we trying to be taught about the history of our people? The question is what lesson remains for us to learn from this? And you know, the lesson of, of the Nephilim is difficult um, because the first thing we see in here is the story of angels going into people. Um, and then um, then we also get to the point where most of the interpretation since that point focused on how hot the human women were and not on what the angels did. So right there, this is my takeaway from this chunk of the passage is, uh, and this is the one that I find particularly relevant today, is the book itself points out that the, the, uh, the angels, the particular class of angels here, which are historically known as the Watchers, uh, sometimes the Grigori, um, uh, that's also how they're referred to in that, that movie I mentioned as well. Um, they go into the human women, they take action. Everything is put on the, the presumably male or male adjacent angels. Um, in the text, but most of the interpretation from then on out um, focuses on the attractiveness of the human women. Um, we look at, um, this is the, the book I read here, it gives a quote from John Milton, uh, the English poet, um, who describes um, in 
old English text, I'm not even gonna bother to, to try and read correctly, um, who, who goes on to describe the, in great detail, um, you know, using phrases such as richly gay, um, <laughs> describes the beauty of the, the women as kind of the, the central theme here. Like this proceeds on and on through history as everyone who reads is like, oh, it must be the women's fault. Um, but like, if you even ascribe, and I'm not sure I necessarily do, to the theory that this prologue about the Nephilim is meant to provide another good reason for the flood. Mm -hmm. If you ascribe to that, I'm not entirely sure I do, um, then it's the angel's fault. Like it's not the fault of the women here, but all of our interpreters are like, yeah, it's totally the chick's fault. Look how they were dressed. So, well, and also it, it goes on to say, you know, uh, humans were just terrible and everything they did was bad and everything they thought was bad and they were just just a big dumb mistake mm -hmm. and it, it doesn't give like any it seems like okay if, if it was that bad why is there no telling of the horrible works of of men before that point with the exception of the first murder which yeah, we've already set, talked about setting aside the the midrash which go into like the descent of humans into uh, from vegetarianism into carnivorism and in some cases into cannibalism, the, the forging of ironworks and stuff like that, tubal cane, all those fun things. Um, what I like to call attention to here is um, like you have two pieces in this intro story. You have the uh, you have the wickedness of humans, which is meant to be the main theme, but it kicks off with the wickedness of the angels. So what I take from this is there's so much contradiction in this prologue set here. Like it's the human's fault. No, it's the angel's fault. Uh, the angels went into the women. It's the women's fault. Like there's so much contradiction and back and forth in here that, it, that I take two things from it. One, um, I don't think like even in the original oral histories that anybody was 100% sure what exactly was going on. And I think that's just a fair read is because there's so many different conflicting ideas here. But I just think it was like, uh, we don't know what happened with the stuff here. So we've got all these different competing theories, who knows? Uh, I also think that it tells us that this human account of what God was thinking is probably not 100% accurate. Um, yeah. And this is when we yeah, go it's not like, you know, God said unto so-and-so, exactly. you know, you guys were a mistake, mm -hmm. just God thought this. And yeah, that's it. That, that does sort of reek of you're assuming what God's thinking. That's never a good plan. Right. And there's a lot of that in the, in the text as well. And this is when we go back to it with a Christological lens, uh, we have to ask ourselves these questions and in interpreting the scripture saying, Okay, well, the scripture says in plain terms, well, God decided that he hated all humans. Uh, he, he decided that a bender-based theology was the way to go with respect to his creation. Uh, you know, kill all humans. Um, Futurama joke, for those keeping track. Um, and a Christological lens goes back on it and says, no, God cares very deeply for the humans that God created. So we have to find a way to mesh what we're seeing here with what we understand of God. And the most logical way to do that is to say, well, the humans who wrote this down probably got a couple things wrong. Because clearly God doesn't actually directly act like that. And when we see the text, 
it's not written as a direct missive from God. It's written as people saying, this is what God thought. So it is most likely that God's intentionality here is being at least a little bit misrepresented. Now, of course, that's not to say there wasn't a flood, and that's not to dismiss the idea that there may have been good reason for said flood. Like, I mean, let's be honest, if we look around the United States right now, we can raise a lot of good reasons for another flood right now. Um, like, Learn to swim. Yeah, like, I mean, if we accept the fact that sometimes God does destroy when things get too bad, like, in a modern sense, it is very easy to grasp the concept of there being a time where God might just say, all right, rocks fall, everybody dies. Um, <laughs> that's it. God, the vengeful DM. Exactly. <laughs> but it's not impossible to understand that if things get that bad, if humans pass the sinfulness part to the, to the mark of borderline irredeemability, for God to just say, you know, we're gonna wipe them all out, you know, we'll sort it out on the heaven side of things. Like it's, there's too much damage being done here. Um, and this may be one of God's first attempts to stem that sin avalanche we've talked about before too. Like God saw how out of control that raging ball of sin had become and said, you know what? Fresh start. All right. We're going to go back to Noah. Some of that will persevere, but maybe it'll go slower. Maybe it'll go different because the way it's going right now, not so big. Got, got a valid point that I want, I want to go over. And this is, I feel like the second time that this has really come up, mm -hmm. God is supposed to be infallible, right? Mm-hmm. Isn't this God saying, I, I screwed up, I made a mistake, I shouldn't have done, I, either I shouldn't have made these people in the first place, or I shouldn't have, you know, let them do such and such, or. Now, this is something I always caution us to consider when we talk about God as infallible, omniscient, omnipresent, et cetera, et cetera. What we are in fact discussing is a trans-temporal agency to God. Um, so God existing outside of time. Now, it's not to say that God made a mistake, but whereas we view things in a linear progression of God did this, and then was surprised that this happened, so made this change, we tend to view it and, and need to view it as God working on a physical object in three dimensions, the same way you would shape a pot on a turning wheel. Um, so it's not so much God is saying, well, this is a mistake, it's that this is the process of shaping, and that just meant I had to kind of strangle in on the neck a little bit here for a second. Um, and what, because that shaping process, and this is something that's important to remember, as linear creatures, we tend to want to think of creation as a thing that happened in the past, uh, and now other things are happening, when in fact the creative act is constantly ongoing. God's creation is a shape that God is forming throughout the entire process of time simultaneously. So what we see happening here is God shaping that pot into the shape it needs to be at this point in its structure. Um, there are the reasons for that, the perspective on that, I couldn't begin to understand because I am also a, uh, a linear temporal creature and short of being Benjamin Sisko, all of us are. Um, it specifically says, though, uh, I'm sorry that I've made them, which yeah. see, which if you're talking about creation being constant, and let's go back to the, the whole, you know, sculpting on a wheel thing. Mm -hmm. um, like, that seems less like trying to work in a, uh, like an, an in cut for, for a neck and more like 
there's already one there and you change your mind and you're trying to kind of scoot it back out possibly but or take or take the knife to it and just and pop that whole section right off yeah i tend to look as interaction at interactions with god in moments like these as much the same as attempting to view a hypercube from three-dimensional space um have you ever read anything on trying to view four-dimensional objects from three-dimensional space uh kind of advanced geometry um close Closest uh, philosophically is reading excerpts from Flatland, which is talking about like, um, like a visitor from three dimensions experiencing a two dimensional world. Yeah, well, let's roll this back into geometry. Like, from a two dimensional space, if you were to see a, a a cube, you would only be able to perceive it as, depending on your angle, either a square or a line. Um, because you don't have that third dimension in which you perceive space. You'd only be able to see the full breadth of it if you went up to another dimension, into three dimensions. You say, oh, actually, there's quite a bit more to it than I saw before. But in my own space, I could only see just this. And it looked like a different thing from the dimensions in which I was operating. Uh, the same goes for if you're looking at how to, how to understand the structure of a Klein bottle, which is a four-dimensional geometrical object that exists uh, partially in three-dimensional space. It looks like it intersects itself and isn't really anything special until you get up into four-dimensional space and like, oh, actually that, that works in that sense. Uh, when we talk about these moments where God is saying like, yeah, I'm, I'm gonna kill them all. I see that as a four, well, probably quite a bit more dimensional deity expressing something that is only understood in three-dimensional terms. And this is a trend we see throughout the Bible is every time God says something, Humans are like, okay, well, all right, how do I interpret that, but with added murder? Um, and that is our, you know, if you will, three-dimensional brains processing God's four-dimensional output. Um, and so there are what I would call intersectionality problems here, is God is saying one thing, but the humans present at the time don't have the capacity to understand the way God operates and are interpreting that according to their own things. So God is saying, this is the way my reality is being shaped right now, um, yada, 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 pottery analogy, whatever. And the humans are hearing, y'all suck, I'm gonna kill most of you. Uh, because that is the processing level, the dimensionality at which they're operating. I know that was more of a complex explanation. Does that kind of make sense? Sort of. I, I, I fear that at points like this, and again, this is relating largely back to just like my, my own, my own spiritual path and what have you I, I i fear that at points like this it becomes like we kind of have to lean on well we just can't understand it because it's god yeah and there's a lot to that like i'm a firm believer that as i just I, I i in this day and age and with the kind of stuff that's going on i worry it's dangerous you know like oh well we have to accept this even though we can't explain any of it because but you know that's that's a journey we'll just have to keep taking yeah so. and i say i say in the end like i believe it's important uh if we want to have a better understanding of god to start trying to push our boundaries of what we can and can't understand mm -hmm. but when we reach our own personal limits it's okay to say in the end i just don't get it like and that is a perfectly fine theological place to be like you'll find me i love pushing the bounds of our understanding here and i will in these videos push them like i'll i'll talk about multi-dimensional modeling and all these other fun crazy ideas to to come up with to understand how god might be working in a place 
but that's pushing ourselves. Like that's something we should do, but we're not always all gonna have the bandwidth for that. And when you don't, it is okay to say, you know what? I just don't get it. Um, and as long as you hold to the understanding, which is true in pretty much every Protestant tradition that God is the fundamental source of all that is good in all that is wonderful and all that is perfect, then you just have to understand there's a connection there somewhere and I may not see it yet, but someday perhaps I will. Well, I am about to run out of laptop power. So <laughs> and I think we're about to, to run out of today. material. Yeah, huh? perfect time to, to end for today. Um, I, I heard your ding and I, I took that as the voice of God saying, it's probably about time for you to stop rambling. <laughs> um, so as per usual, like y'all know where the, the links are down below by now, if you wanna check out our website, if you wanna join us on the Discord server, oh, please, oh, please join us on the Discord server. The conversations are so much fun. Um, um, if you wanna follow us on, like this is also a podcast. So if you're a podcasty type, links down below. And as usual, like, share, and subscribe. Woohoo! Those are the things that make us able to do the things. Please do the things. Something, something algorithm. <laughs> yeah, something, something algorithm, yada, yada, yada. You all know how this stuff works. All right. So if you uh, want to know more, hop on the Discord server, send me an email, carrier pigeons, smoke signals, whatever works. Uh, otherwise, uh, we will see you in our next video next week. So have a great week and we'll catch you then. Bye, all. Peace. Thank you.